You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. When he had been a sailor, Paul Gauguin had dreamed of fields of yellow corn, red cows grazing in the meadows, and rusty peasants sleeping on haystacks. When he was a stockbroker, he dreamed of ships becalmed in flat aquamarine seas, their sails as flaccid and pale as shrouds. Now a painter, he slept alone in his tiny Paris apartment and dreamed of tropical islands where buttery brown girls moved in cool shadows like spirits, and despite the chill autumn night, his sheets were soaked with sweat and entangled him like kelp round the drowned. He sat up on the edge of the bed and wiped his face with his hands, as if he might be able to rub away the vision. The nightmare wasn't the girl. He'd dreamed of island girls since he'd returned from Martinique three years ago. But this one was different, a Polynesian, in a crisp white and blue mission dress, white flowers in her long hair. The girl didn't frighten him at all. She was young and pretty and innocent in the wild, unspoiled way of the Pacific. But there was a shadow there, behind her, something small and dark and menacing. Christopher Moore is the author of You Suck, A Dirty Job, Lamb, Bite Me, Fool, and many other humorous japes. His new novel is Sacre Bleu. Thank you for joining me, Christopher. Thank you. Christopher, this is such a a wonderful and complicated novel. Talk about choosing to take on all the greatest artists in history in one novel. Well, that was probably not the smartest thing I've ever done. Sometimes you start with just this very wide concept and, and... As you know, uh, because we've spoken before, I I sometimes just pick something that sounds like it's going to be difficult to challenge me because I figure I'll do better work if I do that. And so I started out with the concept of, I think I'm going to write a book about the color blue. And, you know, it sort of led through my habit of going to art museums when I'm on book tour to the Impressionists and then the history of the color blue and how it all relates and and is expressed. So it didn't start out as I'm going to ruin art for everyone. Um, It just ended up that way. Well, you, I think it's actually just the opposite. You make bring art alive with vibrant prose, a rich history that moves like lightning, and an exciting story that's fun and sweet. Now, this is one of the things I think that I've observed throughout your career. You do something that's very interesting, that you use uh, the, the tropes of the supernatural that are usually somewhat um, taken to be scary or, or ominous, and you pair it with a, a very sunny kind of fun prose style, this kind of union of opposites that drives your story and, and adds a real propulsion to, you, to your narrative. I, I think that's something that I've done on purpose. That one is on purpose. I, I've, been, I've sort of made Whistling in the Graveyard a, a career. And um, it started a long time ago when I took horror stories. I, th- I fancied myself a horror story writer when I first started out. And I would take my horror stories to writers' conferences and read them. And people would laugh at the way I turned a phrase. And I thought, well, I guess that's what I do. So I ended up... Uh, sort of going with the momentum of what I, it appeared that I d- did well, and, and it's become, I guess, a mark of what I do. Now, with this particular work, you've uh, immersed yourself in Paris in the 1890s, and in fact, well, in, throughout in Europe, through from 
the right. year the, zero. Renaissance time, <laughs> really, yeah. Um, talk about uh, just this is such a complicated history, and I'm guessing that that all these little marks that uh, markers that are in there, a lot of those are real. This must be like running this incredibly complicated maze. It was pretty difficult to put it together. I used um, sort of interesting elements in the color blue to mark where I would, in the history of the color blue, uh, to where I would dive into history and have these moments in history. And so it it uh, became obviously not linear, but sort of with the permanence of ultramarine blue, which is crushed lapis, you know, lapis lazuli, which is a gemstone basically, I sort of approached history, and, and I always approach research not with what are the details and how many of them can I cram into a book, but what's cool? What out of all the, the volumes I read do I think, well, this is awesome? And, and so that sort of becomes the high point, and where they happen in history doesn't necessarily matter because the story is about the color blue. And, and so, you know, we jump from, you know, the Belle Epoque, Paris to Renaissance times with Michelangelo to, you know, even further back. Now, uh, at the center of this book is a character named Lucien Lassard. Mm -hmm. And he's such a wonderful character. And with him, paired with him is Toulouse uh, Lautrec. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a great pairing. And it took me a while. This is one of those books where I started reading it, and the first thing I did was, you know, go to Wikipedia, where's Lucien Lassard in history? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he churns up in reviews of your book nowhere else. Talk about creating this kind of Zelig-like figure to uh, stroll through the, the streets of Belle Epoque, Paris. Well, the interesting thing about this is the time frame for the story um, centered around the death of Vincent van Gogh. Now, to tell the story of the Impressionists, which is kind of what this book ended up being, it would have made much more sense to start it in an event in 1863. But when I, during my research of The Color Blue, and I, and I started uh, reading about different artists' lives, and I read uh, the circumstances of Vincent Van Gogh's life, uh, you know, it became obvious to me very early on that this man didn't kill himself. Um, and so I people this the story the immediate storyline with the contemporaries of Vincent van Gogh which really weren't the impressionists the impressionists had sort of made their grade by 1891 when when um, this story takes place but he actually attended um, drawing classes with Emile Bernard and um, let me think who else was in there Vincent van Gogh and um, uh, Toulouse Lautrec were all together in these classes and they knew each other on Montmartre. And, and all, although Renoir knew um, Toulouse Lautrec as well, Toulouse Lautrec was sort of the young uh, up and coming and, and Renoir had sort of made his bones by those days. Um, so I needed to have a, a way to get back to the Impressionist story that really begins 40 years prior to this. And there was a baker in Paris named um, Edvard Murer, um, who actually supported Renoir and Monet and Cezanne. Um, I use in the book, I talk about Lucien's father, um, Père Lassard, um, as It says, Momar, if you were an artist, Momar is where you went to starve, and Père Lassard would keep you from it. And that Ed, Edward uh, 
Muir actually did that with Renoir. He actually raffled off Pizarro's paintings. He hung the Impressionists in his bakery when no one else would hang their work, and he gave them bread and pastries and coffee and kept them alive when they were going to starve. And so I make his son, Lucien, um, a contemporary of Henri Toulouse-Lautrec. And so Lucien is sort of a composite of Lucien Pizarro, who is the son of, of um, Camille Pizarro, one of the original Impressionists, and was would be the same age as Lucien. Um, and Emile Bernard, who was a, a famous artist, came on, went on to become a famous artist um, at the same time as Toulouse-Lautrec. So Lucien is fictional, but he's Frankenstein together from parts of real people. Well, the plot of this book is remarkably wonderful because it's so complicated. And as we read it and experience it, we get to kind of put together these puzzle pieces. You leap back and forth in time. Did you write this all out originally in a chronological order, plot it, and then go back and slice it together to fit together with the color blue? Or did you create it out of the color blue and then put it together as a puzzle? I sort of took, um, I had four or five different timelines that I had to put together. And, and make work. And so I had events that I needed to have happen. And as I discovered different sort of seminal moments in the book, in the history of interesting moments in the history of the color blue, there's a point um, where I discovered there were two paintings by Michelangelo, which are now in the National Gallery in London, where all the parts of the painting are finished except those parts that would be painted blue as if he had just stopped and said, I'm not going to do these parts. And, and they're so conspicuous in, in the absence of that color, I thought, well, that's got to be in the book. So I had these different elements of that timeline, the things that were very important to be in the, uh, in the story of, of the Impressionists, which is the salon of the refused and in, in, um, of the rejected in um, 1863. And Edward Manet... Um, uh, exhibiting Dijonais sur l'herbe or luncheon in the grass because my French is always corrected and always wrong, um, and how that inspired the young Impressionists at the time, Renoir, Manet, Cezanne, Pizarro, were all there. They all saw that, and they all said, okay, painting has changed. So that was going to be a scene in the book. It had to be, and to have Whistler there because he was friends with Manet. And, and some of the just sort of artistic anecdotes that came through. So basically what I had was this giant sketch pad with these different events drawn in boxes and a lot of lines and circles and arrows saying, how am I going to fit this together? And, and also draw the story of, uh, of the color man who becomes sort of the, the thread which ties everything together um, and, and his companion, Blue. Um, it it was not an easy job. And and even people who are reading the book now are saying, they're about halfway through and they're saying, I'm enjoying it, but I'm confused. And I said, welcome to my world. Well, I think it's it comes together brilliantly. And I love the supernatural conceit. It's hard to these days to come up with an original supernatural conceit. And this is one, I think there's a little bit of a nod to Ma- Arthur Mackin in there, and I, maybe that's not intentional, but because he had that some of the kind of the fairy lore, and there's, you know, the the lost time mm-hmm. it is a bit of a sleepy hollowness. Mm-hmm. But so talk about creating this kind of a, a truly original supernatural uh, creation without Without giving it, well, it turns out that it, you can't write a review of this book without com- spoiling the main conceit that isn't revealed until about 
four-fifths of the way through the book. I, but evidently, everyone who reviews it thinks, well, I should just put that right out front. Well, no, I, I wouldn't do that. No, so. you wouldn't. But <laughs> but everybody who's written a review about it appears to need to. But um, the making stuff, I, I read all of the – I did all of my sort of – homework in the supernatural as I was up and coming, you know, in, mm-hmm. in, in my teens and 20s. And so it's probably been 40 years since I've read a making. So if anything that, that infuses my work at this point by way of influence is just almost subconscious. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have been able to draw that myself. I, re, I was looking to do something original. I was looking to do something that um, supernaturally tied all these artists together. And then once I had the idea of the color man... Because a color man, I think I didn't understand that I had always been under the impression that da Vinci and Raphael and and Michelangelo went out into the hills of Italy and gouged the colors out of the hills and ground them themselves and made color. And in fact, that not only didn't happen, it was would have been nearly impossible. There were colors like coquille uh, crimson that you know is can only be made from crushed beetles that grow on cactuses in Hungary and parts of Spain and um, Tyrian purple, which comes from snails from Syria and and lapis lazuli, which, you know, ultramarine blue, which is made from lapis lazuli that only came from Afghanistan. Well, if you imagine the 12th century medieval artist trying to obtain something that comes from Afghanistan and how literally far that is and remote that is at that point, um, you see that there was a market for a specialist, and these, there were these color men who would go and collect these pigments, either through trade or, or first person, and they wandered around Europe and sold color to artists. And so the color man, a color man, becomes the center of the story of, of providing color to artists from all the different histories that, that we have. And he sort of becomes beyond time in my book. Now, one of the things I really love is the atmosphere of this book uh, because uh, you write in such a a wonderful kind of – you manage to do something I think that's very interesting with your prose. Your prose feels very contemporary um, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't – but when you apply it to this period, it doesn't feel wrong. It feels right. And so all these painters – all I could think about was reading about this is this kind of like Seattle in the 90s or something. Well, I think that I think that anytime you write about I I write about I pick subjects that I have great affection for. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I'm writing about things that I like and whether it's marine mammal biology or or in this case um impressionist art or um you know, I did a book about death and dying that is a funny book about death and dying called A Dirty Job. And I think I approach the subject with with a great affection and enthusiasm, and I and I hope that comes out in the prose. But also, I I keep in mind when I was trying to break into the business, and I always imagined this reader, whether it be a, a beleaguered editor or some reader of the slush pile or an agent who reads too much and in those days, you know, drinks and smokes too much, and then is just is looking for any reason to put the book down. And so I still write with a sort of pace and beat that I hope will not allow that to happen. You know, I don't trust the fact that because I have a bunch of books in print that people will stick with me and trust me. So I think what might seem more contemporary is just simply there's a there's a liveliness of pace that I keep both because of my attitude and because I'm like, I don't want you to put it down. You know, I don't 
I can't trust you. I can't trust myself to keep your attention through, you know, just showing off for some pretty description. So that may be what you're sensing. I don't know. Well, um, too, you you have a you create some great characters that we really love, <clears throat> especially uh, Mama uh, Lu- Lucian's mother. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Talk about creating her because she's so much fun. Um, Lucian's mother. One of the things that that is you have to sort of convey in writing something like this, and you're in the mind of these different male characters because it's a very male dominated world. And women, um, it was tough for them. It was uh, the the women impressionists of Mary Cassatt and and Berta Morissette. Um, they had a difficult time of of being painters, and and women were sort of relegated to these pretty things in their parlors. And not to say that they that was right. It's just what it was. And and all the men of the time had mistresses and and went to brothels, and it was a proper thing. And one of the things we find in the book is that a lot of famous artists will die of syphilis, which clearly they didn't get from their wives. Um, but uh, so I wanted to sort of assert feminine power, which happens in this book in a big way, both with with, uh, with uh, Lessard, Lucien's mother, and um, and with the character Juliet um, later on. And I want, and the other thing is the standard of beauty that it existed at the time. If you look at the paintings from from the mid nineteenth century through the end of the nineteenth century, the women are rounder and 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 uh, and you know they have their hair up in a chignon and and uh, there's a different look to them. The paleness is what is is what's attracted, and yet. It's a standard. It's you know you see it again and again and again in paintings, both you know from the salon who are the 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 uh, accepted painters of France and from the impressionists, and so um, Mère Lessard is a large, beautiful woman, and I and and she is very much in charge. She's large and in charge, and 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 doesn't mind being called evil as long as you include beauty, beautiful also in the. Uh, in the description. Now, this book is a lot about art, and one of the things you say in here <clears throat> is that um, the that uh, the the artist uh, finds himself uh, possessed by hubris, followed by crushing self doubt. And, and I'm wondering if this is a feeling that you yourself are familiar with, because you're dealing with, you know, the bit you're writing about the biggest artists of your time. I I won't put myself in company with the biggest artists of my time, but I will certainly. That is a that's a feeling that I. It is a truism to every artist I know. I, I um, you you have to have this sort of enormous as I let me speak as a writer rather than a painter because I'm a, I'm a rather lousy painter, but you know, you have to have this this wave of hubris to think yes someone will not only want know want to know what I think. But we'll pay me for it, and then immediately it's followed by, "Oh my God, I have no idea what I'm doing." This is, you know, the the oh crap moment I talk about in the book that every artist faces when they're just they're crushed by their self doubt. And and I've never this is my thirteenth novel. I've never written a book that I don't reach that point where I think I'm this was a stupid idea. What am I doing? I'm out of my depth. And the one of the things that consoles me is I I remember in writing my first book. When that hit me, I was reading um, Working Days by John Steinbeck, which is his journal of the Grapes of Wrath. And 
he's writing The Grapes of Wrath, Wrath, which is his magnum opus, and he will basically win the Nobel Prize for that book. And Of Mice and Men is is a huge hit in, on Broadway as a play. And I think The Long Valley is being published to great acclaim around the world. And he's writing in his journal, I'm a complete fraud. One day they're going to find out I have no idea what I'm doing. And, and I thought... I'm just like John Steinbeck. I don't know what I'm doing either. So, so that sort of consoled me back in when I was starting, you know, 22 years ago. And, and to this day, I still think, well, I love John Steinbeck's work. And he claimed he didn't know what he was doing. But it's something I also recognize that it's probably every artist faces that point where you think I'm just a complete fraud and don't know what I'm doing and, and uh, painters as well. Well, you know, one of the things that you point out in this book that I think is so interesting is that, and you do this visually too, is that these artists were painting more than just uh, great works of art. Uh, Toulouse-Lautrec did all sorts of posters, and they were also cartoonists. Yeah. Well, there was a there was a really vibrant uh, artistic community on Montmartre at at, at the time, and it and it transcended genre. In fact, it went the at the time of even leading up to that, and in the time of the Impressionists from the 1860s on, um, artists and poets, um, novelists would meet in the cafes, and they would refer to their creative works as machines. So Emil Zola could talk to Paul Cezanne about painting and novels, and they were best friends for a while too, Zola and and Cezanne. Um, but they wouldn't refer to paintings and novels. They would talk to their talk about their machines because they were these devices of creativity. And so, um, in the in by the eighteen nineties, you have all these magazines that uh, are tied into the cabaret world. Um, La Muretant, um, which was the magazine put out by um, Aristide Brouant. I'm not saying any of these right, but you know, people we don't have calls coming in, so it'll be fine. Um, but but you've seen Toulouse-Lautrec's posters of Brouant with his brash red scarf and his and his uh, big broad brimmed hat, and he also did a, a magazine, and he would have cartoons done by uh, Willet or Steinlin, who did the famous Chat Noir poster that we all know, we know that image, we just don't know who did it, and and so there were great. Um, illustrators, I guess, being born, uh, being made at that time, who were also very competent painters. Willet, um, Adolf uh, Willet, um, had his own magazine called uh, La Vacherie, The Laughing Cow, I guess. Um, and and so it was, uh, no, wait, that's the cheese. Maybe it was the mad cow. It, it, but, but anyway, they all had these magazines. They all exchanged ideas in the cafes. There's a great story about Toulouse-Lautrec uh, challenging someone to a duel because they insulted Vincent Van Gogh's art, you know. And here's, you know, four-foot, nine-inch Toulouse-Lautrec challenging someone to a duel, and no one shows up for the duel because they're so drunk they can't make it. Um, and that's the sort of life that, that's going on there. But it's a, it's a really free exchange of ideas Going on in this in this cafe world, um, both on Montmartre, where uh, sort of the upper class comes to slum and mix with the with the working class, and and in Paris itself, and um, in not yet at Montparnasse, where will be sort of the center of twenties Paris, but but certainly uh, you know near the Ecole de Beaux Arts and and the Louvre and and um, in uh, the Latin Quarter. So it's yeah, there's a it, it's an interesting time with a lot of ideas being thrown around and a lot of people 
doing different things. Um, theories, they're all into theories. And Toulouse-Lautrec and, and some other artists um, put together uh, a group of artists called the Incoherence. And they do a show by the Incoherence where they hang, they, they advertise in a cafe that the Incoherence will be showing. And then they get people who aren't artists and make them draw things and show. Th- and it was entirely to annoy people like Paul Gauguin and and, uh, and Seurat and all these people who were staunch theorists and were always talking about color theory. And they would just make something up to be annoying. And I thought, well, those are these are my people here. <laughs> so, yeah, it was an interesting society that did a lot of, uh, you know, it would have been a great time to be an artist of any form, I think. There's a great joke in there where uh, I think uh, Lautrec uh, teases Gauguin about how he bore the model with his theories. Well, it, exactly. And, and it's, it's interesting. I was in um, Dallas a few weeks ago and at the Museum of Fine Art, and they had a bunch of Emile Bernard um, paintings. And, and Bernard is clearly following Gauguin's theory of cloisonism, which was basically coloring book art. You, you took your colors and you bordered them with black line and kept them in there. And meanwhile, Seurat is doing optic painting, which is, you know, you use pure pigment and put it close together. And you, instead of mixing it on the palette, you mix it in your eye. And, and that's the sort of thing that artists were talking about. It was about color um, at that time. And it, and it was about how you viewed art. And, and um, it really becomes the doorway into what we know as modern art, although I don't explore that in the book. If this, if that doesn't happen, then you don't have a Brock and a and a um, Picasso and and come into what is modern art and and it's sort of these theories are leading to that at that point. Well, uh, one of the things that I think makes this book such a spectacular reading experience is the inclusion of the art in the book, and it changes the way that we read the book because it gives us a, a visual visualization and. Um, creates the characters. I mean, there's some, there's a, a wonderful moment where I, I was talking about cartoons because you actually use, I think it's a portrait of, um, I think it's maybe Sorrow, where he says, I like big butts. Actually, Renoir. It's, yeah, a, it's, Renoir. A, it's Renoir. Yeah. yeah. Well, he never says that. That was one of, there are a few moments in, when you write the kind of stuff that I do that you think, I just can't leave that out. I, I actually have no quote from Auguste Renoir, where he says, I like big butts. But if you, but he says in his biography, which is written by Jean Renoir, his, his son, who was a film director, a famous film director, um, and, and he constantly talks about how he likes a substantial woman, a woman with a substantial bottom. And, and when Lucien and, and Henri first show him uh, the, Lucien's masterpiece, of the blue, he called the blue nude, you know, he just says, well, she's too skinny. You know, she's you know, I like big butts. And um, but it, but if you look at Renoir's work, you know, over the years, he he did. And even Mary Cassatt, there was one account I read where Mary Cassatt is is going on. is He just sits around painting these enormously fat girls. They're disgusting. And it's like so much another woman talking about women instead of a painter talking about another painter. It was it was um, it, it was really funny to me. But. 
the Ren- Renoir, while I, I have great affection for him as a as a person, as I got to know these artists, I got some of them I liked a lot, like Pissarro and and Monet and Renoir, and I thought, well, I'd love to hang out with these guys, and others not so much. Like Degas didn't seem like a very pleasant person to be around, so he didn't get a very big part in my book. But but yeah, the the I like big butts. I that I just put in because I thought it would be a funny caption for a a self portrait of of Ren- of Renoir. And I, it's the same when um, Edward Manet, who was actually friends with James McNeil Whistler, you know, which is sort of an unusual connection that no, a lot of people don't make because you have this French man who really never accepts that he started Impressionism, but he did. And he's friends with, with this American, you know, revolutionary artist who lives as an expat most of, the, most of his life in London. But when he meets, when he sees Whistler for the first time in the book, he says, so Whistler, how's your mother? No, that didn't really happen in real life. But as a, as a cheesy humorist, I went, okay, I can't not put that in. So there are a few times in every book where you just go, I know I shouldn't do this. I really know I shouldn't. But there's that fifth grader in the back of the room of me that says, okay, I have to ruin someone else's education. And, and then I do. So yes, there is a, I like big butts line by Auguste Renoir. <laughs> Well, actually, I, I love the Whistler's Mother line as well, too. You have a lot of fun with that. Now, you know, one of the things I was thinking that as I was, as I was reading this book was that um, uh, part of the, the supernatural aspect of this book has to do with lost time, which is a really common trope mm-hmm. in, in supernatural experiences, real and written. I mean, this mm-hmm. is not un- unusual in people who report this. And I thought what was so interesting as I was reading this and going through with these ep- bits of lost time was that fact that also that the way you were plotting the book and constructing the book, kind of jumping back and forth in time, mm-hmm. echoed that kind of supernatural trope. Well, you know, the the thing that influenced me most with the lost time thing was that the sort of the the battle cry of the Impressionists was, we are going to capture the moment. Monet in particular was, I'm about capturing the moment. And he very famously would set 12 canvases up side by side and paint the cathedral at Rouen. Um, and it, when the light changed, he moved to the next canvas. You couldn't paint the same light twice. It's very much that you can't step in the same river twice. So, so taking that as a theme of it, I thought, well, what if you could stop time? And, you know, he goes back to, uh, you know, I, I think sometimes you give me more credit for my influences than, you know, a higher level of influences. But it goes back to the movie Harvey, where um, um, the James Stewart character, Elwood P. Dowd, says to Dr. Chumley, who runs the the insane asylum where he's being sent, and he's talking about Harvey, the, the giant rabbit, the puka. And he says, you can go anywhere you want. And stay as with anyone you want, and stay as long as you want, and no time will have passed. And um, and I thought, well, that's the kind of character that you know. That's what I want to impose on these characters who are so passionate, passionate enough about capturing the moment that they will paint in a way that is counter survival. You know, and that's the important message of the reality of these guys is they're not just soft pictures of pink cheeked little girls and and fields of flowers and water lilies is they could have made a living. They were all proficient enough technically to make a living to paint the way the salon said you should paint. And they decided not to. 
they decided, I will capture the moment. I will capture modern life. And by doing so, they were going counter survival. And for 25 years, they suffered for that. So the time trope that um, are, I guess, devices that I use sort of feed back to the theme of what the artists were trying to do. And as far as the mechanics of putting the story together and time travel and showing is just, it, it you don't, it, it often isn't efficient to tell a story in chronological order. You want to tell it in dramatic order. You want to reveal those things about the past as they are relevant. And until they become relevant to the story that's happening in the present, that's happening in 1891, we don't need to know about Michelangelo painting um, these these paintings that are now in the National Gallery in London that the, part, the blue parts are left out. We don't need to know about... Um, J.A.M.W. Turner being lashed to the uh, to the mast of a of a ship. We don't need to know about um, James McNeil Whistler, you know, being driven mad with lead poisoning and his mistress running off with Corbet. Those things aren't relevant to the story until they're relevant to the story, even though they may have happened, you know, ten, twenty, forty thousand years ago. And uh, speaking of forty thousand years ago, I was re- I was really enjoyed all the the aspects the some of the the cave painting aspects of this because i think that that's a that's a really um interesting vision of art and so i'd like you to just talk, did you visit any of these caves i didn't visit the caves i i had um how extensively? Tell us a little bit about your travel itinerary. You must have had a hell of a good time researching this book. It was it was it it was not awful. It was pretty awesome. I um I first went to France um I think in 2006 when I was researching Fool, mm-hmm. um which is my Shakespeare book and I was I was just going to medieval towns and so I went to Paris for the first time because I was already over in England touring all these medieval places and I went to Paris for a week and then I went to medieval towns in France to see cathedrals and walled cities and things of that nature because I was going to be writing about that. And um, so I sort of saw the countryside of, of France at that point. Um, to For this book in particular, and, and I always go, have been going to art museums for years and years and years, so that is sort of a, a research that retroactively happened the same way that the book is written. Is I, was, I didn't know I was researching this book in 1996 when I was going to the Chicago Art Institute when I was in Chicago on book tour. Um, but I did, I lived in Paris for two months and we did day trips, um, to, uh, Avers where Van Gogh died, painted and died, um, to Enfleur where Monet lived many summers and, and Rouen, we saw the cathedral charts, um, all these different, uh, small towns around Paris where these different painters, um, lived and worked. I didn't go to the caves at, um, Peshmala. I know I'm not saying these. Um, just dub me in with a, with a decent pronunciation, but um, I that are down near Albi, where where uh, Toulouse Lautrec um, lived, because I was already home at that point when I decided to include those scenes. So I sort of I saw Werner Herzog's movie about the caves, um, the French caves, and I I sort of did research. Um, academic research, but most of my research was in Paris and around Paris um, for a couple of months living there, and, and less being on site at the caves. And, and the idea of the cave, of the Paleolithic man artist being shamanistic is not mine. That's that's something that the theory, the theory that 
the animals you find in these deep, deep caves at Peshmal, and um, there's one in uh, Altamira in, in Spain, where light never has reached. I mean, they're literally, you know, miles into the mountain. It's difficult to get to those places. Yeah, you it's have dangerous. to really, yeah, you have to, you know, there are, there are sort of little holes where you have to literally scurry on your belly to get through. And when scientists started looking at these images and how they were made, they realized that these were not animals that these men hunted. There were no bones in these in the front part of these caves or in the fire piles of these animals they were drawing. And the, the way these animals were portrayed and the scale and so forth, because there were some very skilled artists in Lascaux and some of these other places, was they were shamanistic. These were not real animals. These were supernatural animals. They were seen in trance and and they were they were drawn in places where light never reached so it's what happens if you go into the dark and stay there for a couple of weeks as the shaman you start seeing stuff and they they realized this by doing pet scans of people and t- asking what they saw and what happened in their brain and you know when there was no light and so forth and um so the the idea that came forth to me through this was that the early painters like the early storytellers were the shamanists you know they were the um, they were the holy men, and and so that's the sort of the uh, the meme I bring forth, the theme I bring forth. I don't know what word to use nowadays. There's there's memes, themes, and tropes, and I'm not really sure what's what's what. Now, talk a little bit about the uh, uh, placement of the images with the text. How much of this did you do in terms of? How much of this did you do in terms of? know, as the book was laid out, say, put this image on this page. And because, as, as I say, as a reading experience, it's very nicely paced. And, and congratulations. You, the, the production on this book is beautiful, and they did a fantastic job of putting this together. And I'm really glad they put every single color image in this book. It makes a huge, huge difference. It, w- it was a lot of work. Um, the, the placement of the of the images, sort of, there are some that thematically had to be where they are because of the events that happen in the story relate to the image. And it was a choice early on whether I would spend pages and pages describing a painting that no one had ever seen to try and give it context or to get art in the book. And we had gone back and forth from them being um, black and white images to uh, color images. And, and some of them, uh, quite honestly, in translation between I would choose images that would be presented in color, and then I would find out they weren't going to be presented in color, so I would change to things that that were would appear better in black and white, it would show up better because they were higher contrast, and then all of a sudden color was back on again, and so I would, and, and I think that we actually ended up with some images that I wouldn't have had in the book except that the last minute I, I went, well, wait a minute, there's a better one than this in color, but you didn't tell me we were going to have color because it really... It was a battle of technologies and budgets and so forth to get color in it. But as far as the placement of them, there was always a certain number of pictures that had to be had to appear in the text where they appear in the text. There are quite a few portraits of the artists, either mm-hmm. self-portraits or portraits of each other. And those um, are more representative of the stuff that I was putting in so that you'd see this is a real person I'm writing about. When I write about Camille Pissarro, this is what he looks like. And when I write about uh, Berta Morissette and I talk about Manet's attraction to her, 
you know, you see this beautiful woman and um, and in the French you, laundress. Um, well, that to, yeah, uh, Toulouse Lautrec, Henri Toulouse Lautrec's laundress is um, my favorite painting he's ever done, and you you sort of see some of the garish cabaret works that he's more famous for, but this is just it's this sweet, beautiful peaceful painting that that he did it's, I think it's his masterpiece but but I don't think I've been aware of it until I started uh, reading this book and she becomes a character um, and is a character and was a character in his life I don't know that she had the the gravity in his life that I ascribed to her um, in my story because that's certainly of my creation but as a, she was a real person and um, and you have to see her at a certain point you have to say oh well here's this red-headed laundress that uh, Emile Bernard talks about when they first see her. They've all left drawing school, and she comes out of the laundry, and and uh, Henri Toulouse-Lautrec says she's magnificent in her roughness. I have to paint her, and that that was uh, that is an incident in the book, and it's an anecdote that was that was recorded by Emile de Bernard and really happened. So, uh, some of the things that happen in the characters that become more significant and are there are paintings of were real people. Um, and then they're given more meaning by sort of the supernatural aspect of the book. You know, one of the things, uh, getting back to the theme of art, is you describe um, what uh, that uh, Monet, by virtue of his art, was trying to keep his wife alive. And you give us this beautiful, you describe her deathbed, and then you give us this beautiful picture on the next page. That's a really powerful piece of writing in there. And I think that says a lot about you know, both writing and painting as forms of art. Well, it's a powerful story because, you know, absent the supernatural aspect that I apply to it, it's true. I mean, Monet was all about, as I said earlier, capturing the moment. And when Camille, his wife of 20 years, I think at that point, um, is dying of a, I, I think of tuberculosis, but may have been cancer, but she's dying um, and she starts to turn a certain color blue. Monet says, I have to capture that. And he grabbed, this is who Claude Monet is in this most tragic moment of his life, bar none. He grabs his palette and his canvas and he captures the moment of Camille turning blue from oxygen deprivation. Um, and you can look at that painting at, in the book, but at the Musée d'Orsay in, um, in Paris. And, and that anecdote told me more about who he was than anything else. And, and so when I write about that character, I, and I ascribe it to him trying to preserve her and keep her alive. And, and if, when people read the book, they'll see how that works and why he would do that. But, uh, but it was such a powerful anecdote that it had to be in the book and the painting. And to read that passage and think, well, this is just absurd, and then turn the page and see, here is a Monet painting of Camille on her deathbed. And it's these violent stripes of blue and white. He clearly was doing what I said he was doing, you know, in the book. So trying to, it, it in a way, I hope, gives a dimension of reality to this very wild supernatural story that's going on. Well, I think the what's nice is that the you do a good job of in using the supernatural aspect to externalize to get out all these kind of things that you can't otherwise talk about right. easily. And that's, you know, the the job of the supernatural trope is to to allow uh, a skilled writer to get out there and say, "Okay, here's something about art that's difficult to describe and, and 
and maybe boring to talk about if you just sit there and lecture. But mm-hmm. if you put it in a ripping yarn about uh, the color man, then all of a sudden, and the 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 propulsive nature of our reading this book, I had no idea who the color man was mm-hmm. at the beginning. And that's, I think, one of the great uh, things about reading this book is following it through the thread through all the way to the end, till mm-hmm. practically the very last page, um, you're still finding out uh, the nature of, of this being. I think that that's a, a great plotting device, too. Well, it, it, it mechanically, you know, it, it was complex, and it was something that was necessary because so much of the book was based in history, and so many of the anecdotes were based in history. But you, as you said, you're not going to find Lucien Lessard on Google, and you're not going to find the color man or any of the other aspects of, of the supernatural part of the book. Um, so I had to have one element that was purely mine. It was purely, I, you know, my relationship with the reader. This is the story I'm telling you. Yes, you're you're hopefully painlessly learning something as you go along, which I think is the best in either historical fiction or any kind of fiction is all of a sudden you come out going, oh, I know Kung Fu. And, uh, and you didn't remember having to learn that. And so I, and I've gotten letters from people now that the book's been out for a little while that say, well, now I know something about what I'm looking at when I look at art, um, at, at Impressionist art anyway, which is you know gratifying. But, but the story of the color man, the story of the color blue, is that's mine. And and now it's yours as a reader. So so that's sort of our communication and our contract that I go through. Um, how well it works as a device is, you know, how well, you know if you enjoy the book, it worked. If not, not so much. Keeps it, it well makes it a ripping yarn for me. You know, also too, it enables you to talk about to say things that you know. At one point, you give actually give a. At one point, you actually give a formula for art, which as sacrifice, suffering, and love, and I, I think that's a really good uh, formula. Well, it, there's there's a lot of elements I think that go into art, and I, it's it, it's pretentious I think to try and reduce it beyond. I um I think Simon Shama uses in one of his his uh, documentaries. He says it's um, the intersection of imagination and skill. And craft, um, and I think that's a good definition of art in in one way too. Um, the the suffering and and love and, and the passion that goes into it is is sort of what Sacre Bleu is about. Beyond you know the color blue, it's what else goes on the canvas, and and very literally what goes on the canvas uh, for a lot of these artists is their passion their love, their suffering, um, there's always a, a price to pay for a great art. And, um, and that's, that's a theme, you know, that, so now if you take the test, you know, you'll, you'll do well because you know, like, you'll identify that that's a major theme of the book is that there's always a price to pay for art. Well, actually, this is a book that uh, I think in terms of a, a work of American magical realism, uh, this is a, a, a pretty significant work, I'd say. It has it. It has a a, a hefty slice of, of history that's well that's accurate where it needs to be accurate and imaginative where it needs to be imaginative, and it's exciting to read. But it makes some statements that you know bear remembering. Uh, so I think that it's certainly worth remembering. And one of the things I like about it, that you make so much wordplay in this book. Like you, you make a connection between 
somebody who is a muse and the word amuse? Well, uh, the the word amuse does relate to <laughs> it comes from a muse. Um, one is amused is the same way that enchanted is is taken by a chant, and one and amused is taken by a muse, inspired by a muse. Um, the the um, that's a theme in this book too. Yeah, Love absolutely, and magic. absolutely, and and it's um, the you know the the wordplay with with those certain you know that's my art. You know, that's what I get to do. But fortunately, I've kept it out of the realm of, of sort of um, deconstructive literature that's going to be taught in college because there's enough penis jokes to make people back off. They'll go, well, <laughs> this is adolescent and silly, so so I don't really have to worry about it ever becoming a great piece of magical realism because they'll go, wait a minute, there's like 30 penis jokes in here. We can't, this isn't this isn't high art, you know? I think you're being on the conservative side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to scare people away because that is a theme. <laughs> well, I, I, it's also a theme too because all, all these all these men artists and, and the, the the great proportion of them were men were uh, painting based largely on their obsession of women. Well, I think that there's there's a a great deal of that, but I, and that goes back to it goes back to you know, the beginning of time mm-hmm. basically. Um, you know, if you, you I think it's uh, Jean-Paul Sartre says, I'm not sure that all this existentialism wasn't just a way to meet girls. Um, I, I mean, there's like <laughs> one of the heaviest thinkers of our of the last century. And it's like, what? Um, you know, I, I've I've yet to meet a, a musician of any stature who doesn't somewhere in his heart admit, yes, I love music, but. I learned to play the guitar because I thought I'd be able to get girls. I don't know that that wasn't the case. And the, I think the difficult thing is, and I, I've had this happen in, talking to a couple of women readers, is it's hard to come into this world that was so male-dominated and to look at it. You can't look at it through the lens of the 21st century. It's just not the same world. It is not women. The reason that Berta Morissette and Mary Cassatt and Eva Gonzalez and the other female impressionists don't take a big part in this book is because they weren't allowed to go to the places that cafe life was happening. Um, and the women that were allowed to go to those places were not, you know, of the higher cl- They weren't ladies. And there's this wild double standard that goes on. This is, although it is France, it's Victorian era France. So they had omnibus streetcars where the women were not allowed to ride on the top uh, floor of the streetcar, the, the top part of the streetcar, lest someone might get a glimpse of their ankles as they are going up the steps. Yet, there are open licensed brothels. There are tens of thousands of licensed legal prostitutes. It's an accepted practice that every single gentleman has at least one mistress. Um, there's this this huge double standard, and to try and write a story that doesn't just go off down some rat hole about, boy, that was pretty awful, and to keep you know my the majority of my readers are female to keep them engaged in it, it it's a challenge. I don't you know I, I don't mean to whine about what's clearly a champagne problem, but but uh, it it's um, it it was tough to have female characters without looking at at them as a as an inspiration for the male characters who are really the main players in this art movement that I'm writing about. 
And what are you writing about now? Now I'm writing another uh, Shakespeare-inspired uh, story set in Venice with um, characters from Othello and Merchant of Venice and my fool from Fool. So because, you know, one Shakespeare play just wasn't a big enough rock to lift. So I'm going to have two Shakespeare plays and my fool from my King Lear parody. Wow, that sounds exciting. Now, are you, are you spending a lot of time in Venice? I've been to Venice, and I probably um, I'm writing basically about medieval Venice because mm-hmm. I, this takes place beginning shortly after Fool Ends, which is you know late 1200s, mm-hmm. and and so there's the Venice that I need to see isn't there anymore. But I've been to Venice, and I know enough about it. So so uh, a lot of it is going to be. It'll be myth- mythological the way the same way that my King Lear book was because the you know Shakespeare's you know it's there's at one point in that I've already written where they all he says well he has an English accent he says well strangely enough all of us do because yeah, so many of uh, so many and I write in this in this sort of British idiom because the comedy is it's fun to write British comedy and as I did in Fool and. Um, yet you, all these, you know, two gentlemen of Verona and Romeo and Juliet, and all these Italian plays—they're clearly English people, you know, saying their their lines. So I'm just going to have the character sort of, you know, break the fourth wall and go, "Why are we all speaking with English accent?" You know. So uh, I've and I've watched a lot of BBC Royal Shakespeare stuff where they have the lower class uh, characters, the servants, and and so forth, like Lancelot Gobo and um, Gabo in. Um, in Merchant of Venice speaks with a Cockney accent, you know, for because that's their analog to uh, lower class English, you know, is is so it's it's there are a lot of rules to break when you do it. Um, it's a challenge. Well, I'm sure you'll be leaving a shattered ruins of many rules left behind you. As you... <laughs> I'm trying to ruin as much Shakespeare as I can for everyone. Yeah, thank you. Well, I think you've done a, a great job of actually bringing all these things to life. Well, thank you. I've been speaking with Christopher Moore. His newest book is A Sacre Blue. Thank you for joining me, Christopher. Thanks for having me, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.